Benjamin Zephaniah, welcome to Tell a Friend. In the past week, we've seen global outrage over the murder of George Floyd in America. And after that, we had the global movement uh, in solidarity with um, Black Americans. What has been your assessment or reaction to all of this? To me, I mean, it's like a ray of hope in a sense. I mean, the killing was a bad thing, of course. But, you know, my cousin was killed in almost exactly the same way in Birmingham, in England. You know, a lot of people said, oh, it happens in America. No, no, it happens here too. And the George Floyd killing wasn't a gun. I mean, I know since then there's been shootings, but um, you don't always need a gun to kill, especially when you have a uniform that has so much power. So my cousin, Mikey Powell, was killed in 2003 in Birmingham with a foot in the back of his neck. He was on the floor, in his case, in a police van. And, um, you know, uh, Sean Rigg died in a similar way. Um, uh, uh, I mean, there's, there's so many people I could go on and on. So uh, one of the problems with all these cases is that, you know, people knew about them in England, but it wasn't really an international thing. I mean, I would go to Australia and I would say, do you know there's a guy that died in custody in, in, in Britain? And they go, oh yeah, oh, that happened to one of our Aboriginal people here. Or I'd do that in Canada or somewhere. George Floyd was kind of almost live on the internet. And it's, it's, it's almost impossible for anybody, even the kind of worst races in the world to look at that and go, anything else, but that's outrageous, that's disgusting. And I've seen this before, I, you know, I, I, I'm old, I'm 62 now, going 63. You probably don't remember Rodney King. Rodney King was beaten near to death, live. <laughs> you know, I remember seeing that five minutes after it happened on the internet and thinking, oh, after this, it will never happen again. Then it happened again, then it happened again, then it happened again. So what's different about George Floyd? I think it's because it was all there. It took so long. You could hear him talking. I don't know if you've actually heard a transcript of what he's saying. But he says, please, officer. Okay, I can't do anything. He says, then he cries for his mother. His mother apparently has been dead for years. He says, mama, mama. Um, and so what really gives me hope and I've been on a few Black Lives Matter marches. What really gives me hope is that this new movement of Black Lives Matter is not all black people. You know, I've seen some marches where black people are in the minority. Uh, I mean, I, not far from where I live in Hull, they had a march there and it was like spot the black person and they were saying Black Lives Matter. Um, I've seen corporate buildings, although I'm so, sometimes I can be a bit suspicious with corporate buildings, but I've seen a corporate building just saying white, white people wake up. Yeah. Um, so that kind of gives me hope that it's gone beyond the black community. You know, they can't say we've got a chip on our shoulder, we're exaggerating. Um, so that gives me hope. And there's been a lot of criticisms uh, towards some of the people protesting in, and the way that they've been protesting. What do you say to those who are taking to the streets? Do you have any advice for them? Keep taking to the streets. I mean, we've been trying to, if you look at the statues, for example, 
look at the statue in Bristol, Edward Colston. We've been campaigning to get rid of that. I've been part of a campaign for the last 15, 18 years. Nothing. So, you know, people get angry and people say, well, tear it down. The interesting thing is it was a multicultural, a multiracial, if you like, group that kind of took it down. But, you know, I think the majority of the people there were white people. People that put it into the room. It just shows you the kind of strength of the anger. Um, taking to the streets is really important because we, for years and years we've been doing the lobbying. And as for, you know, some people get violent. Sometimes the violence is put upon the people by the police. They still do this. My response is, look, I mean, I love football. I mean, I may be an Aston Villa supporter, that's another thing, but I do love football, right? right? Now, I go to football matches all the time, and um, every now and again, there's violence. It doesn't mean football is bad, you know? It doesn't mean the cause is bad, the sport that we go and watch. So our cause is righteous. We know we are right. I am not willing to debate with somebody who thinks that racism is good. You know, it's just not a legitimate argument. We are on the right side of history. So it's our job to go out there. If some people get a bit angry and, and, and go a bit wayward, well, that happens, but it doesn't mean our cause is wrong. And I just want to shift our conversation to moving uh, on to you and talking a bit about your early life. Could you take me back to a young Benjamin Zephaniah growing up in Birmingham, and could you describe what those foundational years were like? Well, where to start? I mean, um, I was born in the hospital that my mother worked in. My mother came from Jamaica. And it's really interesting in these times of, I mean, <laughs> Jim O'Dell was saying to somebody, I want to make a badge or a t-shirt that says, save the NHS, Black Lives Matter because black lies are just so integral into the making of DNA just. I mean, my mother was in Jamaica and her dream was to work in the NHS, not in the Jamaican health service, I mean, but in the NHS in Britain, because it was the model all over the world. And people, people forget, especially people on the right, they forget that actually it's a socialist idea. You know, it, it came from the left and, um, and so that was what she wanted to work in. She was working in this hospital, and that's the hospital I was born in. I was a very difficult birth, apparently. Um, I don't remember it that well. But. And um, I grew up in a Birmingham where, you know, 1958, so the Windrush generation had not long come. They were settling down. And they were getting lots of racism. I mean, I can remember going in the shop with my mother and uh, she's waiting in the queue and she's next to be served. And this woman comes in and says, you know, Sandra, you're not going to serve the darky before me, are you? And then the shopkeeper says, of course not, you know, come here. And I said to my mum, you didn't use the word racism. I was only a little kid. I said, mum, is that right? She said, oh, she's in a hurry. It's all right, you know. She worked in a hospital. Patients slapped her. Could you, could you imagine? People that she was looking after literally slapped her. <laughs> I said, you know, don't let that black woman touch me. And she always tried to see the good side, you know, they're a bit confused, they're not well and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I saw that, you know, from my mother 
and a lot of the other elders around me. The difference was with them that they kind of took it. You know, I asked my mother just recently, I said to her, a bit of a family dispute, she was kind of criticizing Muslims or something. And I said, Mum, I've never heard you criticize white people. And she said, I never would, we are a guest in their country. So she still thinks, she's 86 and she still thinks she's a guest in the country. And I said to her, well, I don't feel like a guest, you know, this is my country. But that's the, that's the reason they didn't rise up in the early days. I mean, there was always people kind of trying to, trying to kind of let it be known that they have rights. But generally, a lot of that generation were like, we are guests, we've got to step carefully, we don't want to rock the boat too much. Um, but apart from that, as a kid, it's a great childhood in one sense. My early years, I remember, completely different to the way kids grow up now. I mean, a lot of playing on the streets. Kids hardly do that now. We would play football on the streets and every 10, 15, 20 minutes, a car would go past and then we just keep playing. You know, there wasn't all the cars that we have now. It's just, the streets were the place to play and the car would come past every now and again. Um, I remember most of our toys were made. My first bicycle, we got a wheel, we got a frame, we got a chain got a back wheel, got a saddle, put it together and made a bike, go-karts and stuff like that. So I remember just being really resilient as kids. You know, my first job was me and my brother in the back garden. I mean, we were only 10 or something, but we started fixing punchers and bikes and, 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 and prams and a woman, you know, in those days, it wasn't pushchairs. Women had big prams where the babies looking at the, you know, not just the woman, but looking at the parents. And if they broke down, because we had skills doing bicycles, we'd fix them as well. So we saw ourselves as little entrepreneurs. Um, and I remember those as good times, you know, tough. And we were really poor. I mean, poverty, you can't imagine. But we didn't really feel poor because everybody else around us was poor. We didn't really see rich people. So we thought this was it, you know. And... Um, Later on, I began to experience racism. Um, I remember when I was about eight, I had a brick slapped in my head, my first experience of racism, and this guy said, you know, and he was riding past on a bicycle and he slapped my head as we went past him. And he said, um, go home, you black bastard. And I went home to my mother and I, and I said, he, he said, go home. And I said, mama, I was going home. I just couldn't understand it, you know. I didn't think of home as being anywhere else. I said, I was going home. Why did he want me to go home? And he called me a black, and I went, well, I'm black. And, and I was obsessed with why did he call me a bastard? I just couldn't understand the word bastard. And my mum, being this upright Christian that doesn't use bad language, just went, oh, well, never mind that word. So never mind that word. Um, but, you know, on the whole, it was, it was a kind of good upbringing. It was rough. I'll tell you something that happened to me and, you know, this would never, I don't think this could ever happen again. I think the parent would be locked up for child abuse or something. I got in fight with a boy from another little part of Birmingham and he beat me. And I went home to my dad and I said, oh, God, you know, my nose is bleeding. And he said, go back, fight him again. And I went back and I fought him again and I lost again, you know, and he said, go back and fight him again. I went back the third time. And 
this time I beat him. And then I came on and went, Dad, I beat him and went, good, 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 good. And then I realized a couple of days later that my dad knew his dad and they were just toughening me up. You know, that couldn't be done now. <laughs> you know, I mean, that would be seen as some kind of cruelty or something. Um, but on one hand, it taught me to be tough, you know, and it taught me to, um, once you've been, it's not just about fighting, once you're down, you get up, you brush yourself up and you go again, you know. And all that stuff, the bicycles and stuff, just taught me how to be resilient and how to recycle and all that kind of stuff, you know. So I really appreciate it. My teenage years um, was very different, you know. I started getting in trouble with the police. My parents split up. My dad became very violent towards my mother. And um, my mother ran away. Now, there were seven of us. And um, the other stayed with my dad. And I ran away with my mum because we were very close. And, uh, and that was kind of difficult because I started getting in trouble with the police. A young teenage boy on the streets then, there were always these groups of um, National Front people and just racists. Again, it can be quite hard for people to imagine nowadays, but you would go out on the street shopping and you would just see groups of thugs. You know. In the daytime, they tended to leave you alone. Sometimes if they got you on your own, they would attack you. But in the nighttime, they were very dangerous. So we had to organize ourselves. We didn't think of it as political. They had white gangs, we had black gangs, you know, that was it. And um, to fight, to protect ourselves. And, um, and in those days, I mean, <laughs> I can remember once there was a kind of protest against the National Front. And there was this line of police officers. And this police officer just took his finger, turned around to his vehicle, and with his finger wrote NF in the vehicle, which, was, which meant National Front. So the police officer was, was declaring that he also was a member of the National Front. I mean, could you believe that? Signed up member of the police force, also a signed up member of the National Front. You, you're not allowed to do that anymore. Um, but that's what it was like then. I mean, we had so many enemies, but we stuck together. It's really interesting, you know, how did we stuck together? When People talk about baying people now, black and ethnic minorities and all this stuff. We didn't use that term. We just said black and it meant everybody that wasn't white because they were coming for all of us. They wouldn't beat me a, a bit more than they beat you because I'm slightly lighter skin or something like that. You know, they were, all of us were the same. And we didn't do all this thing about Jamaican, Nigerian, Ghanaian, Trinidadian, Hindu, Sikh, Muslim, none of that. They didn't ask us about that stuff when they attacked us. I know it's different now, and I know people would disagree with that approach now. But for us, it was a matter of life or death. We had to stick together. We weren't concerned with little differences between us. And going back to what you were saying about uh, the division, not division, but the difference in outlook between your mother and yourself, who obviously you've been a fighter all your life. Is that something that you saw in the 70s as a generational divide between, you know, the parents who just wanted to do their jobs and leave it be, and then this radical 
group of young people in the 70s who were taken to the streets and fighting? Well, <laughs> it may be a really weird thing to do, but look at the length of my locks. They go right down past my knees, almost to my toes, right? My mother was a Christian. She wanted to be a good Christian. She had a picture of Jesus on the wall that looked like Italian, all right? We came along and we said, that's okay. You know, if you want to look at biblical history or Quranic history or whatever it is, we can see that, but we've got to make it applicable to us now. And we became wrestlers. And we said, we are not going to cut our hair. And we said, we respect the history. Marcus Garvey, he was really important to us for the Christian. I mean, almost the founder of the Rastafarian movement, but he himself was a Christian. Um, but we wanted to say that we are here and we are not going to tolerate a lot of what you tolerated in the past. And also my mother was ashamed of Africa. And we said, no, we all come from Africa. And we want to take pride in that. And um, so there was a divide in that sense. You know, my mother would have, would have liked me to be in the house reading the Bible, just being quiet, not making a noise, not protesting or anything like that. And we said, no, first of all, we wanted to get out into the streets. When you went out into the streets in those days, you got arrested. You know, I didn't realize until much later when I started traveling, you know, I'd, I'd go to various parts of Africa and I'd go to very part, various parts of the Caribbean. And even in South America and places like that, they have this tradition of just hanging out, just chilling on the street. In Trinidad, they call it liming, you know, everybody's got their different words for it. I remember getting stopped by the police when I was a teenager and he said, where are you going? And I went, nowhere. Where are you coming from? And I went, nowhere. He said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm just being here in a moment, <laughs> you know? And he said, you can't do that. You've got to be leaving one piece of concrete and going to another. You've got to be doing something. You can't just hang out on the streets. And I went, well, this is what we do. And then I think it's British European culture in those days. It was like, you had to be somewhere or going somewhere. You couldn't just be out in the street. And that would get us in trouble. So we want to go to a youth club. We went into the youth club to play table tennis or play pinball machines. The white kids would say, get out or they want to fight us. You know, so we would fight back, get in trouble with the police, you know. And my mother's there saying, you know, if you found Jesus and stayed home, you would this wouldn't be happening to you, you know. And you know, I remember when I um one day this kid said to me that all black people should be slaves. And I went to my mother and said, Mom. What does he mean? And she explained to me that once upon a time, black people were held in slavery. And she explained to me what slavery was. And then she said, but it doesn't matter because one day we are going to die. And when we die, we'll be free in heaven. And I said, mom, I really like the idea of being free 
and liberated and all that. But I don't really want to die to get there. You know what I mean? I want it now. And that was a major difference between our generation. You know, they were waiting for redemption in, in a, in a, on another level and we wanted it now. And during that time, we had a lot of, uh, I, I say we, there, there were a lot of black power organizations in Britain. So you had the British Black Panthers, Black Freedom and Unity Party, all of these movements, uh, predominantly in London, but also in Birmingham, in uh, Liverpool, all these other places. Were you aware of this black power movement and were you involved? No, in Birmingham, I was not. I, I mean, I was involved in the Rasta movement. And I remember we had a big black, uh, big African liberation day celebration, which kind of gone down in, in Birmingham history, massive gathering of black people. But what I was doing was I was watching television and I used to see, I heard about the Black Panther movement in, in London. And then I remember seeing Dark as Howe on television. And um, some of the other people that were involved in the party and fighting against racism in London. And the punk movement started around that time as well. And so it was all about kind of black and white uniting as I was getting older and the, the, the Black Panther movement had kind of ended but Dark as How, CLR James, all these people were still talking, Leila, How, um, and, um, and I remember kind of saying when I got sick of Birmingham, I'm going to go to London, I want to meet these people, I want to connect with these people. And I was really lucky because I came to London and before very long, I had connected with them. By then, they were called the Race Today Collective, um, published in a magazine called Race Today. And there were lots of different organisations around London. And then, of course, the New Cross Massacre, the New Cross Fire happened. And that galvanised a lot of us. And that was like one of the biggest marches by black people, organised by black people in the history of Britain. I don't know if that still stands, but at the time it was. 13 kids, uh, well, 13 young people killed in a fire in New Cross. And um, at that time, there was also lots of writers. That, the, 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 the National Front were big, but also the police had a thing called the Sus Law, the Law of Suspicion. And it just meant they could stop you if they thought that you may commit a crime in the next few hours or the next day or something. I mean, it's crazy law. It was the law that originally was made to pick vagrants up off the, sleep, up, up, off the streets. And, um, but they found a way of using it against black people. So we were campaigning um, to get rid of that. And in the end, we were victorious. Thatcher dropped it. So yes, I kind of heard of them in Birmingham, came down to London. I was a little bit late, but I joined them and still played my part in my own little way. Now, skipping back to your early years, like we were talking about in a second, a second ago, what were some of the music and literature you were consuming at that time? Well, my favourite book was, and I still have my original copy, was The Philosophies and Opinions of Marcus Garvey. I still have my old leather-bound copy of that. Um, didn't actually do much reading. There was another book called Sex and Race by somebody called J.A. Rogers, 
who I don't really hear about now. I don't know if that writer's still alive. I, I can't. I, I don't know what he is. I don't know if he, even if he's a white guy or a black guy, or whatever. But he wrote about the origins of black people and how black people um, were kind of traveling all over the world a long time before white people were, etc. And it was a fascinating book. Um, J. A. Rogers, Sex and Race. Um, lots of little pamphlets that came out every now and again. Uh, names that I can't remember. But um, I guess they were like little collectives of people. Black Women's Collective, Birmingham, you know, and they'd, they'd be around for a short while and then they'd disappear or the pamphlet would disappear. But my main thing was music. My main thing was music. So the music I was listening to mainly was reggae. Reggae was big then. And it was the music of black consciousness, kind of, in Jamaica, obviously, and in... Britain and lots of other places in Europe. Um, Bob Marley is kind of obvious, but having said that, I mean, Bob Marley wasn't really that popular on what we call the blues scene in the early days. Bob Marley, um, I, I always loved Bob Marley, but some of my friends used to mock me for, for liking him. You know, they said he was a little bit soft and a little bit lightweight. And, you know, all those sweet harmonies with reggae was hard and dobby. Um, the, the artists I used to like were Big Youth, the guy called Big Youth, um, Burning Spear, uh, Judy Mowat, who was one of Bob Marley's backing singers, um, uh, Ken Booth, and um, Black Uhuru. These are kind of militant Rasta groups. And on the other hand, um, I also like punk. I was one of those rasters that kind of, because we did a lot of gigs with punk bands in those days. Um, and um, so the bands like The Ruts, Sham 69. Um, I remember, who was it? Was it Sham? Was it the yeah, I think it was, the, oh gosh. I think it was The Ruts that had a, a song called Bobby Line is Burning. And Babylon was the term that Rastas used, and to hear these white guys using it was like really odd. Um, so, yeah. And then uh, there was a little bit of soul as well. There was a little bit of what we used to call soul in those days. So, um, some Stevie Wonder, Superstition, um, Curtis Mayfield, Freddy's Dead, Freddy's Dead, Freddy's Dead, Freddy's Dead. Anything with bass, you know. And I wanted to ask, when was your introduction to poetry? What, what led you to uh, take on that art? Really hearing poetry, not reading it so much. Um, a lot of Jamaican women, and men, but mainly the women, were just full of poetry. And it's the way that they memorise lots of things that little girls had to do and stuff like that. And they had all these nursery rhymes, Sammy plant piece I can't do no gully, and it be a tibbit kill poor Sammy. Sammy dead, Sammy dead, Sammy dead oh. Sammy dead, Sammy dead, Sammy dead oh. Mossy teeth, Sammy teeth, make them kill it. Mossy teeth, Sammy teeth, make them kill it. All that kind of stuff. I just grew up listening to all that kind of stuff. 
And I just used to love the rhythm and the rhyme. And so I just used to make my own versions of this. And we didn't even call it poetry, I called it playing with words. Um, so that was my first introduction to poetry. And like I said, I started making my own versions of these nursery rhymes and things. And, um, and then I decided I wanted to be a writer, or I decided I wanted to be a poet. And I mean, this is going to sound like really politically correct now, but this is the reality. I remember when I was younger, see, I was toasting. It's kind of like rapping and sound systems. And that was all right, you know, you'd freestyle. But then I'd think, no, I want to do poetry on the music. You know, I want to slow it down and do something more meaningful. And I was experimenting with that. But I was a young boy, right? So, you know, and I was into girls. And I remember I used to go to nightclubs and uh, I used to, you know, go to chat up a girl and I go, you know, hey, baby, you want to dance with me? Me's a writer, you know. <laughs> You know, I just sounded outrageous there. It would always make them interested. Oh, you're a writer. So what do you write about? Well, I write about life, you know what I mean? Me and you. I write about me and you. you know? And it just, because I always say to people, like, if you want to be a writer, just start acting like a writer. You know, be a writer. Don't wait. No one gives you the official stamp. You know what I mean? Just go and act like a writer. And to me, that was my kind of, me acting like a writer, if you like. Um, so, um, when I came down to London, 1978, I met people and they said, look, if you want to be a writer, you've got to be published. And I tried to get published and I couldn't get published. And so I just carried on performing. And, I was, and because of the, what we were just talking about, the sus law, the punks and the, and the black community coming together, they had these, a lot of concerts, they were called Rock Against Racism concerts. And I used to go on, 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 on those stages. And sometimes my name wasn't on the bill, I would just go and write, you know, there would be, I don't know, Bob Marley would be on with Oswald or something like that. And I'd be in the middle, I'd just be, when they ch change over instrument, I'd go, can I just go on and do a poem? You know, and they would just let me go on and do a poem. And then they get, hey, the point good, bring the point back. <laughs> and then I just started to make a name for myself. Um, so my early performances weren't in little coffee rooms with people sitting down reading poems. Like, they were on big stages. That's why, in a way, I'm most at home reading my poems on big music stages rather than like little quiet places where they drink tea and eat biscuits and um, so yeah, and I, I always, even when I was young, I had a vision of what I wanted to do in terms of poetry. I knew I wanted to have poetry with rhythm. The poetry had to be social commentary. The poetry really had to speak about my experience. And I knew that if it was speaking about my experience, it would also connect to the wider black community. And talking about some of that social commentary, you were very engaged in the apartheid issue in South Africa and you collaborated with the Whalers uh, in tribute to Nelson Mandela. Could you talk to me about what it was about that cause that motivated you to speak publicly about what was going on over there? Well, it was just so, just so wrong, you know. Um, 
we were here and we just took certain things for granted just having white friends and um, just mixing together and making music together to hear about a country in what we then call modern times where black people couldn't be in a band with white people black and white kids couldn't go to school together where black people actually where white people actually as government policy said they were superior you know um it's it's in the name apartheid living apart there's separation um so it just hit me and then i was really lucky because i got to know a lot of the um, people that were in exile here so I was very good friends with somebody called Dali Tambo, who was the son of Oliver Tambo, Nelson Mandela's right-hand man. I mean, he was just a teenager when we met, but he was organizing gigs to make awareness about South Africa. And he really wanted to connect with the Caribbean community. So, you know, he came to me. Um, Mandelanga, who um, was a writer and a poet, we became good friends. I think we met at one of these poetry events. Yeah, he went back to South Africa and became Minister of Culture. Um, there are so many of them that were here. Um, in fact, I remember when I went back to South Africa when Mandela was released, and there was an area where a lot of them used to live, because I just knew them from London. They all went to a place called um, Observatory, which was like really, it's like the Hampstead Heath of, of uh, Johannesburg all the politicians and the rich people used to live and they all had gone back and started living in those houses and the South Africans the kind of uh, everyday South Africans would call them the pipe smokers because they lived in these nice houses and they picked up the habit of smoking pipes <laughs> um, but um, they were all in exile in London. I remember seeing a photograph of Nelson Mandela's first government and looking at it and thinking, wow, I know like a good half of these people. And it was just very important. And the anti-apartheid movement in Britain for a long while was very white. It was kind of the white left wing, which is why um, Dali Tambo and these people came to me, they said, look, we want to connect with, with, the, with the Caribbean community here, with the African community here. So that's what we did. And I'm, you know, every time I go to South Africa now and I see a free South Africa, even with all these problems, I think I'm so proud to be of being a part of your liberation. And you're an artist, creative extraordinaire. So I wanted to ask you, do you think it is the responsibility of the artist to engage in politics and current affairs, or do you believe the artist is okay to just disengage with those current topics? Well, first of all, I have to disagree with you about the extraordinaire. I'm just a, just a street poet, man. Um, but I think it's really important for artists to engage it doesn't mean that every piece of work has got to be political. There's nothing wrong with writing about falling out of love. There's nothing wrong with writing about falling down the stairs. You know, um, 
But what's the context? Who are you falling in love with? Is it illegal? You know? There's usually a political context. And I think if you ignore the politics, then that's not good. Again, I find nowadays when I'm talking to people and doing interviews and, and just talking to people generally, I just keep referring to my age. I'm sorry if, if you know you get fed up of this. But I think there is a difference. Imagine right, the black community in Britain is really small. There's no black people on television. There's nothing like this, right? There's no black people in the media. There's no politician. There's no black politicians, right? The black people we see on television will always be American, Sydney Potier or whatever. And I get the opportunity to go on television or make a record or write a poem. I couldn't write a poem about daffodils and how I kissed the girl near the daffodil and go back to my community. They would say, look, you had three minutes to say something. And all you did was talk about kissing a girl near the daffodil. You know, kissing a girl near the daffodil is cool, but come on, we are desperate. That's how we were, we were desperate for a voice. So we didn't have the luxury of not being political. When writers tell me that they have, you know, they don't like being political in their work, I think that's a luxury we can't have. You know, that's a privilege. I don't care if you're white or black or whatever, that's a privilege that I can't afford to have. Because back then I knew the state of the, the black community in Britain. And even right now, I understand even more about what's going on with black people in Britain. And the interesting thing is, I don't know if you can feel this, you get a sense of this, and you, you, you probably don't because you're so young. Um, but we were really militants. We really fought against apartheid and the National Front and all that stuff. And then there was a period where people of my generation were complaining are oh, the kids nowadays, you know, they're only interested in computers, they're only interested in their PlayStation, we're only interested in this. And we say, we say, where's the black consciousness, you know, where's the consciousness amongst the youth? And I, to, to be honest, I thought there was for a while, because I looked, listened to all the music and it was all about get down, get down, and all this kind of stuff. I didn't understand people saying get down because we wanted to stand up and fight. And then suddenly there's this new wave you know, you could call it under the banner of Black Lives Matter. And then I think it was slightly before that, you know, but people just saying, we're not going to take any more. And, and I'm really pleased to see, you know. Um, so um, I can't remember what the question was now. Was <laughs> I've probably gone completely off piece. But no, I, I, I hear what you're saying. And uh... I wanted to ask you, with the recent discussions around toppling statues and reassessing national heroes, if we look at the creative field, so we've seen uh, Kanye West and Bill Cosby, two people who have created controversy and a lot of people have stopped consuming their work. 
Do you believe you can remove the artist from their art? Well, I think, you know, there's, there's a poet I like called Mervyn Peake, who's a white poet. And um, he was involved in, oh gosh, I can't remember, was it the first, I think it was the First World War, he was an artist as well. He went out and drew images. And he just writes poetry that's completely non-political. It's all about little, I just love the rhyming stories and things. It's just about animals living in jars and all crazy things like that. And I was bigging him up all the time and then somebody said to me, do you know he was a real racist? And I was like, what? I just didn't know, you know? Philip Larkin, who died recently, he was like the hero of kind of, you know, then they went and looked at his papers at home and he hated black people, he hated women, ironically, which is really weird. But it had a strange relationship with women. I think, I think we have to be reasonable and understanding. People look at me sometimes and they say, you know, you was a criminal. You did really bad things. And I, I, my reply would be, but I talk about them. I'm open and I talk about all my mistakes and I use my mistakes to go back. I go and lecture in prisons. I did a lecture the other day from my prison cell, from the cell I was in. I stood there and lectured all these prisoners and it was so moving. Even I was moved by what I was saying and the response I was getting back because it wasn't a do-gooder. It wasn't somebody that studied criminology or anything like that. It's me saying I was in this cell and how I felt at that time and what it was like in the 70s to be a black man in prison and how I picked myself up and turned my life around. So I think that's the difference, you know, I talk about my mistakes all the time and I say you got to learn from them. Um, people uh, like um, Cosby, for example, is kind of in complete denial. You know, he will not say, you know, I, I won't even say, whether he deserves it or not is another thing. But he won't even say, for God's sake, he won't even say, oh, please forgive me, I did wrong. You know? um, so I think that's different. And when it comes to people that do slavery, you know, slavery is not like a little mistake. You know, you know slavery is wrong. If you can do it for 20, 30 years of your life, make a lot of money out of it, that's, that's very different. Um, but my main point is that as human beings, as artists, we are flawed. Normal everyday people have made mistakes, they've done wrongs, and hopefully they learn from them, and that's the thing. And in 2003, you famously rejected your OBE uh, nomination, and I was wondering if you could talk to me a bit about your decision to reject it, and especially in light of the conversation we've got now about imperialism and decolonization, why was it important for you to reject the order of the British Empire? <laughs> because it's the order of the British Empire. I'm not in that order. I'm just not a member of that club. Yeah. And I've been fighting against empire all my life. How can I just attach it to my name? I, I, I get I, I get a shiver down my spine when I think about it. It's just you know it gives me the creeps. It just 
empire, slavery attached to my name. I mean, <laughs> I just couldn't do it. And I, and I do find it difficult, and I don't want to criticise people, but I do find it difficult when people say they are fighting against their fight and they fight against racism, and then they go and attach that to their name. And usually they'll say, oh, I did it for my mother, or I do it for my community. Well, if you do it for your community, my community respects me more because I didn't take it. You know? I remember when I refused it, um, somebody was very critical of me. And uh, he went into a youth club and long afterwards and he was kind of booed and jeered out of it. I went into the same place a couple of weeks later and everybody welcomed me like a hero. And I mean, I felt slightly embarrassed because I keep saying to them, not taking the OBE is something that I didn't do. It's not something that I did. It's something that I didn't do. They give me the OBE and I went, no, I'm not doing it. You know, so I, I didn't want to be famous for that. But, um, you know, it's about, it's about everybody's individual conscience. Um, but I just need to, I just couldn't live with it, you know. And I, the, I think that we as a people should find ways of bigging ourselves up. But it should be divorced from monarchy and government. That's all I say, really. I just don't, I just don't like to impress monarchy or government. It's done, I don't, I don't like to use the word career, but it's done my path in poetry or career, whatever you want to call it, no harm at all. Um, and I still do what I want to do, we have real integrity. You know, I, I, yeah, I can look myself in the face every morning and um, I've never regretted it for one moment. And I, and I say that as somebody that's met the Queen, you know, and I used to do a lot of work with the British Council and the Queen is a patron, you know, I've met her. Um, and um, so it's not about the Queen as such. I always say, uh, I, had, I had a good friend called Tony Benn who was in the Labour Party and he always taught me, you attack the institution, not the individual. The Queen can't help the family that she's born into. Just like white people can't help being born white, you know but it's the institution of monarchy or it's the institution of white supremacy. You know, both are the things we are fighting against. Um, so that's really what I've got to say on that subject. Benjamin Zephaniah, no B-E, that's what I call myself. Uh, <laughs> In December, you uh, were one of the signatories of an open letter endorsing Jeremy Corbyn. And we've seen the Labour Party switch hands and now Keir Starmer is, you know, running the show. Do you still have faith with, uh, with the Labour Party? Well, I'm an anarchist, you know, I don't really believe in parties and government anyway. But I think within the system we have to work in. Um, um, they're the lesser of evils, you know. Um, I think I, I, I'll stand by Jeremy Corbyn's uh, ideas, many of them. Um, it's interesting what he was saying about the health service and the lack of investment, and then look what happens. Not even a year later. Um, nobody was expecting a pandemic, and yet he talked about what would happen if one happened. I mean, like a profit almost. Um, so, 
I do think that, you know, if we are going to live within the system that we have, we need a government that um, can look after the health service, that's priorities are the poorer people and giving justice to economic justice and um, legal justice to people that are poor. And um, I, you know, as the three major parties go, I, I have to go to the Labour Party. Having said that, you know, a lot of my votes lately have gone to the Greens. Yeah, so it, you know, it's just the kind of area I live in. Um, so, you know, please, you know, don't, I don't want anybody that hears this, sees this to misunderstand what I'm saying. I am an anarchist. I don't believe in government. I believe that we don't need church and we don't need state. I believe they just show a lack of confidence in ourselves. We can control our own spiritual religious thoughts. We can control our own lives, but we've lost the confidence. And until we gain that confidence back, um, I lean to the left. And finally, I wanted to conclude with a quick fire round of questions. So I'll ask you to complete the sentence. Number one, the biggest misconception about me is? That I'm a really serious dude. What I fear most is? Um, another pandemic. I'm most thankful for? Life itself. I'm proudest of? Uh, British multiculturalism. <laughs> and lastly, poetry means? Everything. That means everything, you know, trees, grass, sex, food, poetry, means everything. <laughs> Benjamin Zephaniah, thank you for joining me on Telefriend. Peace. I shall tell my friends.